Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Kat. And we're Sorting Hat Chats. And today we're sorting Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth. And we will excitedly revisit this in the future when the third book comes out. Oh, absolutely. I like that plan. Yeah, we have to update it. We have to reopen the case when new information comes in. That's very important to empiricism. Data changes conclusions. Mm-hmm. All right, if you are not familiar with our system or need a refresher, we sort two ways. Primary houses are about motivation, morals. It's about why people do things. Secondary houses is the methods, the means, how people do things. And then people will also sometimes model houses they don't have. They'll use the tools of their house, but they have a primary and a secondary um, that are their own. Okay, so Gideon the Ninth, what is it? How would you describe Gideon the Ninth, Kat? I would describe it as a puzzle box with a gothic, apocalyptic aesthetic and a lot of sass that draws from current slang, which makes it a delightful read. Oh, all the memes, right? Yeah, like I don't actually remember a 15 minutes late with Starbucks meme, but like it wouldn't be out of place. And I heard some criticism about that actually, and I thought that was silly because it added to my enjoyment so much. Oh, criticism of the memes? Yeah, that it was like that there wasn't enough of an explanation for why Gideon and Harrow, like Gideon specifically, like why she knew all of these memes, why her sense of humor was so different from the rest of her world. And in the book, the author a little bit points to the magazines, the titty mags. Um, But also, I just didn't really need an explanation, personally. Yeah, I didn't need an explanation. And even that, if you wanted to make it meta, um, one of the things I found really interesting is there's this underlying implication that isn't yet explained. and, And we'll see if we get more information on it. But it seems like the world that John came from is our world. So she's using the memes as cultural artifacts to imply that, you know, this post-apocalyptic world that they came from with the nine planets is our solar system. Yes, that's definitely my impression. So that's interesting. We've maintained some of the um, cultural memes and they're understood outside their context. Like, also, I think she's doing it because it's hilarious. I do feel like it's mostly because it's hilarious. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. But no, that's a really interesting in-canon explanation. And I'm curious to see if we're going to get more um, more context there for really what, what the moments of John's story were. I think we're going to, because he didn't die. and He did not he's going to want to bond with his daughter. And I feel like we're going to get his story through his bonding with Gideon. Both his daughters, right? Yeah, he sees Harrow as as a daughter as well. That's true. That's true. It's just a slightly less biological daughter. But that's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's an adopted He didn't know he had a daughter. And he met Harrow and he said, hey. You're my daughter. If I had one, I wish she was like you. Yeah. Um, Which was fun in terms of a, a, it's a sweet connection between them. It's also you know, weird and creepy in the context of him being someone she sees as a literal god and moments later prostates herself before. But that's sort of, this whole book has this really 
both of the books have this really interesting mix between, you know, things that are fun or funny or heartfelt or sweet being juxtaposed these things that are pretty overtly and viscerally horrifying, both like the gore, but also a lot of the implications of this society are just deeply toxic and deeply upsetting. But you get the feeling, especially as you read more through it, that they know they don't want you to be comfortable with John. You know, John comes in and he's sweet and he's funny and he's interesting. No, like the other lictors try to kill him. Yeah, and it's for really good reasons. You know, he's horrifying, um, even though he's he's surface pleasant. And I think a lot of the book is is like that. Yeah, the fact that he didn't tell them about how to achieve a more perfect lictorhood and instead let all of their cavaliers die. Oh my god, I kind of wanted them to kill him too. And I'm sure that's not the worst of it, but like that that in and of itself is like that is unforgivably selfish and a weird decision yeah it's viscerally horrifying and it's one of the things i think that threw me off the book initially i I found the first third of, of gideon especially really hard to get through is it throws you down into a world and a set of characters where a lot of things are really really horrible you know you get thrown into gideon trying to escape harrow um, especially because this, this book was a lot of people trying to get me to read this as this, you know, exciting lesbian necromancers. And I'm like, oh, no, no, this is this is not romance here. This is really, really creepy, weird stuff happening. It is a little bit, and it was sold to me this way, too. It is a little bit enemies to lovers, except they never quite get to lovers, really-ish. It's ambiguously lovers, but that's really my thing, and it's really not your thing. It's not, well, actually, I think by the end of book three, she's going to sell me on it. Like, Enemies and Lovers is not a particular trope I love, but done well, I can read pretty much any trope. And she's put a lot of work into these characters. And by the end of Harrow, but by the end of Gideon, I believe they have the potential to have some sort of positive connection. Mm-hmm. Which she gets to through fleshing out Gideon, fleshing out Harrow, um... A degree of both context and also repentance on Harrow's part gets you to a, a place where you have possibility at the end of Gideon. And then, of course, Gideon dies, and that's sad for everyone. And then by the end of Harrow, because we have so much time with Harrow, and the effort and the repentance and the growth that Harrow's putting in takes you to a place where you don't just believe that Harrow and Gideon could have some sort of, you know, functional positive connection but that you're rooting for them to be able to get to that place. By the time she gets to the end of book three, I'm going to be down with probably with whatever she wants Gideon and Harrow to be, which is a really, really cool journey. But uh, she had to do a lot of hard work to get us from where they are in the first chapter to both recontextualizing and growing the characters such that me, someone who does not particularly jive with enemies to lovers, believes it, I don't want to call it a failure, but I think she could have done more to establish why we should trust the narrator to know that everything's fucked up. Yeah, and I think it has to do with both the book, the writing and the way they imply things, but also the marketing of the book. Mm-hmm. I think if the marketing hadn't pushed lesbians in space so hard, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been sitting there being like, Okay, but when one of the 
romantic interest, question marks, is raising a skeleton army to forcibly keep you from leaving the terrible death planet she has you trapped on. We maybe don't call it romance, guys, which I wouldn't have been doing if I hadn't started it thinking, wait, you guys want me to ship this? I actually, when I first, when I first read it, um, I didn't ship it at all. Um, I was like, oh, by lesbians in space, because I hadn't actually heard a lot of the marketing or a lot of the talk. Um, I was like, oh, by lesbians in space, you mean that both of these characters are lesbians, but they're not in love. Okay, I can accept that they're, they are both lesbians in space. That's okay that they're not in a relationship. And then I was convinced that it was going to be, um, Gideon and uh, Dulcinea. Dulcinea was my favorite character. Yes. She still is. I love her. <laughs> I liked her a lot more on the reread. Um, I, I, I liked her, her at the beginning. Times. I liked her post-revelation. I was just having a great time with Dulcinea. No, that, okay, that's what it was. I loved her at the beginning, and then I got mad at her after we found out that she was actually Catheret because she killed Gideon. She did kill Gideon. I was really mad at her for that. I was pretty sure Gideon wasn't dead. And I just, I just love Dulcinea. Um, and I love that we spent all of book two in Harrow's point of view. I think that's one of the things that really helped me with getting to recontextualize Harrow mm-hmm. and also to see the effort she is putting in. And that's yeah. what really helps bring the pair of them out of this really, really unbalanced power dynamic they start in where any sort of honest romance is truly impossible. Oh my god, the reveal about her seeing the body everywhere blew my mind. Seeing Harrow put all that that effort and labor in really, it, it goes to, to rebalance that power dynamic by putting a bunch of ballast, um, you know, on Gideon's side, you know, mm-hmm. through the, the efforts and labors of love and, and dedication that Harrow is showing in a way that is so entirely non-self-serving. It's true, and especially in Gideon, um, we got, you know, almost all of it through Gideon's point of view, if not Mm -hmm. all of it. And I think it was the way that Gideon sees Harrow um, is very unreliable. And one of the things I loved about the book is how that changed um, through the book. But especially at the beginning, Gideon really saw Harrow as this, like, evil magical being where things just kind of always happen because Harrow always makes them happen because that is just Harrow's power. Um, And getting to see the behind the scenes of that, like Harrow working herself to being unconscious and bleeding out, like, and being there for that entire time, like really reframed it for me. Yeah, it makes her a lot more human than getting Mm -hmm. even painting her. And it makes them a lot more equals especially as you figure out all the ways in which Gideon is superhuman. And it reframes a lot of their struggles in childhood as something that's a lot more balanced. Not entirely balanced, because there's still still issues of of power imbalance there. But it's not as intensive as we are first led to believe. There's just real labor the author quotes in through all of book one to recontextualize Harrow, really culminating with that conversation in the swimming pool. And then... All through book two, this real effort to transform Harrow, because that was also needed. And it's going to be really interesting to see what what transformations we get in book three. Because this author's really good at giving you something and then transforming it, either changing context or changing it 
or through reveals that just turn everything on their head. Mm-hmm. And I'm expecting more of that in book three, which will be delightful. Yeah, I'm really excited. That that recontextualizing she does is a lot of... That's a big part of the way the author presents information to the reader. She doesn't always spell things out directly. She often just puts two things next to each other and lets you figure it out. And so like I was saying, the, the first part of the book was hard for me to get through because everyone was so unhappy and the world was so unhappy. And I wasn't sure what it was I was reading. And the point where it became much more clear what I was reading is when we get to Cannon House or Canaan House. I'm not sure how you say it. Um, I think Canaan House. Okay. So when we get to Canaan House and we start to meet the other pairs and you see that Gideon and Harrow's dying, bone-covered, toxic world they come from, which is their normal everyday setup, is alien and upsetting even to the other members of this necromantic death cult. Because they're all in a necromantic death cult. But Harrow and Gideon are in the particularly culty part. Um, and we don't really even spell that out too much. You know, the people who say explicitly, you guys are very upsetting, are Eighth House, which are extremists in their own way, who we also aren't supposed to sympathize with. But seeing the way, you know, Magnus reacts, um, or the other characters even react. Even seeing the way that Teacher reacts, um, and this this whole conception of how the the prayers are so different in the ninth house compared to the prayers in all of the other houses and how the prayers in the ninth in the ninth house haven't changed since the resurrection yeah and that that was one of the first times where i really felt like i had that perspective of like oh the ninth house is a really weird cult and no one knows how to talk about it <laughs> and that really helped me with being able to invest more in the book because it mm-hmm. gave me this faith that okay the author knows something interesting is happening here. You know, this is not desirable. You know, this this setup that we're in. And so that that gave me, you know, this this faith to continue on with the story and to be able to to emerge in it without worry it was going to take me someplace I didn't want to go. It might take me to upset some upsetting places, and it certainly does. But because it knows it's taking you there, that makes it so much more interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I understood it at the time was that we were just very deep in Gideon's perception. Because I don't think Gideon realized how weird it was, too. She just knew she didn't like it. Yeah, exactly. So I liked getting to... I, I liked getting to adjust our perspective along with Gideon adjusting her perspective, but mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. absolutely understand how that made it hard for you to get through the first part. I feel like I got through the first part by appreciation of wit and aesthetic. There's great wit and aesthetic. It's just this isn't my aesthetic. It's not. So I can like look at it and be like, oh, yes, I admire the skill and talent, and I see why... Um, there are certain friends of ours who love this book, and this is so their aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I wasn't I wasn't a goth in high school. <laughs> I don't come from um, this background. Neither was I. You know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and so I I was kind of watching it from the outside because I had no place to invest in for the mm-hmm. first third. 
So I was looking for something I could find interesting. And for me, it's the moment we go, oh, okay, we're having some cultural clashes here. We're having some different understandings of what is normal and what is right and what is okay. And the author clearly, though she has not said it, but she has now implied it by giving us this clear juxtaposition, she knows there's conflict here. She knows yeah. there's things that need to be resolved or complicated or at least pointed to. And after that, I was, I was on board. That's also mm-hmm. when it starts being a puzzle box. And I love puzzle boxes. It's such a so, good puzzle box, too. But there's so many, and they, like, nest in each other, mm-hmm. and they interconnect, and sometimes you set one on fire. It's a, <laughs> it's a delightful show, this whole book. It is. Oh, and God, some of the humor during the puzzle boxes. I yeah. fucking lost it in one of the, I think it might have been the first room where Gideon was like, it looks like a bunch of swords. I want to fight it. <laughs> it's, it's such a smart book. And it's yeah. so intricate. Um, and then on top of being intricate and well-plotted and well-executed, the, the varnish on the top of all of that is... And also, you know, having great characters who are super solid within that puzzle box, which is something that's sometimes hard for people who are puzzle box specialists as writers. She has this beautiful, hilarious, resonant voice that goes over it. You know, for Gideon, for the world, for Harrow, for the different characters. Her her ability to craft sentences and to jump registers between Gideon's crassest, you know, sex pal jokes to, you know, really high gothic um, or really explicit, straightforward, visceral gore. And they all meld so well. And the places they juxtapose just make all of those elements that much more striking. It's, it's yeah. really a feat. That's one of my favorite bits of her writing, I think, is the way that she balances all of that. It makes for such a rich world. Right? And, like, I want to know both what happens next, but I also want to know just more about this world. Yeah. You know. I'm invested in the plot. That I'm never, never invested happens. in plot. <laughs> Nonsense is that. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's great. Um, but now that we've talked for some time about the book and what we're going to be sorting here. Do we want to sort it? I on guess. our sorting podcast? Like maybe. I suppose. I suppose we could. You said that you've ha- you have some strong opinions on this pair of characters. So do you want to start us off with with what you're thinking? I I am happy to. Yes. I've been waiting to hear this for so long, Kat. I'm so excited. Oh my god, this is the moment. This is it. <laughs> it's happening. Okay. So Gideon is a, I believe, a Hufflepuff primary, Gryffindor secondary. Yeah! She's a protagonist. She is. She's my favorite. I love her. Well, they're all my favorite. It's fine. It's completely fair. Yeah. Um, And Harrow is a stripped primary, and I'm not positive what's under it, and a Ravenclaw secondary badass. I like it. Okay, so let's start with, let's just start from the top. All right. So I also think Gideon is a Hufflepuff primary. The first moment in the reading of Gideon the Ninth where I went, oh, look, it's a Hufflepuff, is when we get off the ship at Canaan House for the first time and Dulcinea collapses and Gideon just 
books it to go catch her. There's no thought. There's no decision. There's just, look, a person. They're fainting. I'm going to go handle that right now. It's just the kind of person Gideon is, even after all of the shit she's been through. As soon as she sees a living person who needs something, she's there. And she cares immediately at cost to herself. For me, the tip-off was how badly she wanted to join Second House um, oh. to go join the cohort. Oh, you're so right. Keep going. That's great. Because she was in this community, but she knew she didn't fit into the community. The community actively hated and ostracized her. And so she fixated on the only other community that she had ever heard about. And she tried to escape to them. Like, wasn't it something like over 80 times starting when she was four or something? Yeah, and she's shaped her whole self around being someone who would fit in well to Second House. Because this whole culture is one that's obsessed with death, which is another thing I think I'm very curious to see where the author takes that in book three. Mm -hmm. um, I think she's been slowly circling that point of, of deconstruction, which will be fun. Um, but, but yeah, no, Gideon is, she wants a community so badly. She immediately helps others in need when she sees them. She is not a Ravenclaw primary. She has not no. decided or thought about this morality once in her entire life. Nope. I don't think she's a Gryffindor primary either. I, I can see why someone could argue that, but she's so people-based. She's mm -hmm. so wanting to, to be part of a, a loving crowd, so wanting to help specifically individuals. She doesn't seem to care very much about what's right, what's wrong, whatever. She's kind of nihilistic about that. Again, death cult. And she doesn't really do a lot of almost independent or internal thinking or assessment of right or wrong. She just says, person in need, you know, group that hates me, group that doesn't hate me. She just wants things. Yeah, she doesn't seem to frame things in terms of idealism. She doesn't have any particular issues with the ideals of the ninth house or even really with like the stuff that she encounters in Canaan house it's a lot more about like well who's getting hurt well don't be an asshole then yeah like the way she reacts to um you, you see it again with the the fourth children um she doesn't necessarily particularly like them doesn't really have strong opinions about the right or wrong or anything, but when they're in danger and when they die, that guts her so entirely. You know, in a way it wouldn't gut her if she was a Slytherin primary, but, but seeing those kids die and feeling like she didn't do enough, just that mm -hmm. just guts her so entirely. Yeah. It's a good apple. And she's not burned, which is very impressive. No, she's not burned. I think it's because... I mean, she had the second house to cling on to. I, I feel like that kept her from burning. I'm, I'm, I feel like she would have maybe burned more otherwise. If she didn't have a hope, right? She had a, she had an idea of a way out. Yeah. Into something that she could still connect with, with that Hufflepuff primary. Yeah, and that kept her buoyant. Um, and I think it was also probably helped with her, like you say, Gryffindor secondary. She just busts through things. She just says, no, I'm going to hit it with a giant sword. Oh, I I did also want to mention that I think, um, I'm not sure it's a fully fledged model, um, mm -hmm. but she has definitely learned how to Ravenclaw secondary in order to deal with Harrow. Oh, yeah. Like in the first chapter. Yeah. 
specifically in the first chapter. <laughs> when she comes up and she's planning to escape, she is going through Ravenclaw model steps, being like, okay, I will check all of these things. I will check all of these things. I will finish all of these things. You know, she's going yeah. down her checklist of preparedness because she has learned she is she cannot just punch through Harrow's defenses and plans. She has yeah, to counter at, them. At first, I actually thought she was a Ravenclaw secondary, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a war of Ravenclaw secondaries. This will be really fun for me as a Ravenclaw secondary. Let's do it. <laughs> um, and it was that, but it also really wasn't. And I loved watching her come into her own and be like, or I could punch it with my sword. Yeah, alternatively, I could just punch it with my sword. Yeah. Um, always a good answer. It's how she solves the, the bone monster. It's great. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting because she's basically, she's meeting Harrow on the battlefield, on Harrow's battlefield. Because she's choosing to interact with it largely with a Ravenclaw secondary model. Um, so I almost wonder if there's an element of, I wouldn't say her secondary is fully burned. But I think in a lot of ways, it's taking the bigger brunt of damage than her primary is. Because her primary is dreaming of second house. Yeah. But her secondary, I think she doesn't believe, especially against Harrow, who in the beginning of the book is sort of her greatest fear and her greatest obstacle. She does not believe that her innate Gryffindor secondary can succeed against that. And so she uses these other tools. I think the place that we see her Gryffindor secondary most when we're still in the ninth house is in the way that she talks to people. She yeah. definitely doesn't do much strategy. She, like, laughs openly and tells it how it is and does that very, like, no, I'm just me. I'm just me regardless of circumstance unless you, like, threaten me to be otherwise <laughs> Harrow. Yeah, and it's it's sort of part of her defiance, and it's part of her claiming her own self and identity in this place that hates herself and her identity by refusing to pretend to be something else. Yeah, and then she goes to Canaan House, and suddenly she has the opportunity to take what has always been her secondary wheelhouse and use it to achieve real results, and her confidence just shoots through the roof through the roof. Speaking of Harrow's Ravenclaw secondary, I definitely, reading the book, you know, she's bearing the bone, she always has a million things prepped on her body. Those are, you know, some really key Ravenclaw preparedness actions there. But I've got a proposition for you, which is, what if she also has a Ravenclaw secondary model? Because when we get to know Harrow in the second book, this is not the shining, terrifying, prepared, magical girl that Gideon describes for us. This person is a wreck and a shell and terrified all of the time. And she is just doing this constant, desperate churn to survive and thrive. And it's not just in the context of being this half-broken lighter on the space station with, with God and his cronies. It's also... When you look at her flashbacks, she has always been this person who thinks of herself as a war crime and who thinks of herself as desperately trying to live up to all of these dead children. And I'm wondering if she built a Ravenclaw secondary model as well, because like Gideon thought, you know, that's the only way where she can succeed against the things that she's most terrified of. 
that's plausible. Right? I think it would be really interesting. It's a super interesting parallel to Gideon and Harrow. That that they're engaging in this war against each other using things that are not either of their secondaries. Using this model that they both had to build to survive in the toxic pit of Ninth House, which we find out, in fact, hates them both. The other secondary I considered for Harrow was Hufflepuff secondary. That's what I'm thinking, because she, like, if we just looked at Gideon the Ninth, book one, I'd be like, Ravenclaw secondary, there we go. But we learn so much about her in Harrow the Ninth in book two. And she's such a hard worker. She does not stop. You were even mentioning this earlier. She just, she just churns and she works and she gives and she is always there. And we find out that that's also how she ran Ninth House when she took over. She's there giving bedside vigils. She's there making skeleton after skeleton, constantly studying, always praying, just slowly churning away at problems until they fall apart, until she can break into things that are impossible to break into, you know, until she can keep alive a house that is meant to die. So I'm thinking a Hufflepuff secondary that she has no faith in. Hmm. She doesn't think she can work hard enough to be worth it, let alone work hard enough to win. She can't stop trying. I don't know. I feel like it could be either. That's really fair. Like, I'm not sure we'll know what her secondary, what's her model. I'm I'm not even... They could both be her model, honestly. Like, I don't think she's healed her secondary yet. That's true. She's so... We might need to wait until the third book comes out for us to really... Assuming that at some point in the third book, Harrow gets ever... a slightly nicer time. Oh, God. I... I'm optimistically <laughs> assuming, but yeah, we'll see. Maybe not. <laughs> they all go down in flames. I, I wouldn't put it past them. I could see that being a satisfying ending if that's where we get no. to. No. Um. <laughs> Would not be. Sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's, for me, the most interesting way to sort Harrow at the moment is the Ravenclaw secondary as a model. Mm-hmm. Because we never see her do it for joy. and We never see her do it as an afterthought Hmm. it's always for a purpose yeah and I guess the the Hufflepuff secondary shows up a little bit more frequently when it's more of a habit or when times are a little slower and not just when it's absolutely required like imposing mm-hmm. on Gideon the responsibility of putting makeup on every single day to get prepared is maybe a projection yeah. of here you need to you need to copy my Hufflepuff secondary instead of trying to teach Harrow a Ravenclaw secondary skill set there. There's just this feel of this constant grind, you know? Uh-huh. And like I, I think in general there's very little joy in Harrow, just as a as a baseline rule. <laughs> but I think I see in her more of a tendency for hard work than for preparedness in a lot of ways, Hmm. especially once we get internal. Mm -hmm. She is very prepared, and that, but it feels like a tool she is using. It doesn't feel like it's something that could give her joy in a time of peace. I think if she was not on the defensive, and if she was not on the offensive, she would just sit and do her work. That does sound right. I don't think she would excitedly go out and try to learn things. 
you know, the way she goes after necromancy, it's because she needs it. That's true. Yeah. And one of the scenes that's popping into my mind is when Harrow and, and Gideon make that deal with each other, like where Gideon's pushing for like, and eight hours of sleep, right? <laughs> and, yeah, and the fact Harrow's that that's... Like, yes, seven and a half hours of sleep. We agree. <laughs> <laughs> And that's very, that's very much like some of the Hufflepuff secondaries, I know. And I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, but... it's not, I don't want to, I'm trying to avoid a false dichotomy here, but I think there is at least a tendency in Ravenclaw secondaries to prioritize working smarter over harder and vice versa with Hufflepuff secondaries. <laughs> I think that is a very reasonable tendency to claim um, as a very as our <laughs> local Hufflepuff secondary. <laughs> But no, just just reading Harrow the Ninth, I was like, oh, oh, are you a Hufflepuff? Is that what oh, we're doing? God. Stop bleeding and passing out. Oh no, you're right. She is. I think yeah. Okay. Right. She has a gorgeous model, but I think you're. I think it's you're so right. great. No, I see. I see what you're poking at. Yeah, I think the the model's her armor, right? It's her bones. Oh, it is. It's literally her bones. Oh no. <laughs> it is. It's literally her bones, and I just and I love oh, that no. she and Gideon both built one because they were told by their world that they weren't good enough Mm -hmm. that they had to be better and bigger than themselves they start investing in this external secondary and they start investing in these external actions and preparedness and tools and plans and that's just i think that's a place they meet is when they both realize the other one is not their machiavellian Ravenclaw adversary mm-hmm. but in fact another hurt broken girl who is trying to survive in a world that hates them mm. yeah you know they're the only two living girls of their entire planet and that's really meaningful I think yeah for you know however you describe them both as living yeah so we we can now turn to the most difficult question which we have saved for last which is Harrow's primary, which is definitely burned, but what is it? <laughs> All right, so this is actually one where I have a feeling. Okay, I also have a feeling, but you go first. Okay, okay, so I think she's also a Hufflepuff. Mm. And I'm not sure she's that burned. Oh, interesting. I think she, if you look at Harrow's motivations, why is she doing this? She has a couple reasons. One, she's desperate to save Ninth House. It is dying, and it's her responsibility. And if she just works hard enough and is prepared enough, maybe she can become a lector and save it and bring it back from from death, right? That's why she agrees to all of this. Yeah, and also she's a war crime, and she has to make her life worth all of the lives that were sacrificed for her, which is pretty Hufflepuff. Exactly. She, those children who died to make Hero into the power she is, that is such a driving motivation for Hero. She is so miserable about it, but she is also so absolutely encompassingly dedicated to making their sacrifice worth it. Mm. And that's just such a major part of why she's doing everything. To save the ninth house that lives, and to live for the ninth house that died. I see what you're poking at, and I like it. I would like to 
offer a count um I would like to offer an alternative explanation that I think still encompasses all of those points, which is that she's a Slytherin primary with a rather big circle. Yes, I think that one's also very valid because it could just be that she has decided instead of instead of ninth house being her responsibility and her duty it could just be that ninth house is hers yeah and because for me that also explains her choice to sacrifice her own power um which would make her better able to you know save ninth house and save a lot of the rest of people by refusing to draw power from Gideon. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, that felt like a Slytherin desperately prioritizing someone. Yeah, and I think one of the things that counts in its favor is in her false world that she makes up, she was willing to sacrifice Ortis in a way where she wasn't able to sacrifice Gideon. Yes. And so the question there is that false world she made up Was that an accurate representation of what Harrow would have done in that circumstance? Or is it what Harrow thinks they would have done in that circumstance? Because one of the really important things about Harrow is she hates herself. She thinks not only her origin is evil, but that origin in itself makes her evil. I would believe that she would think that she would sacrifice Ortis without a thought even though I'm not sure she actually would have if he had been who came as her cavalier instead of Gideon. I think that is both internally consistent and entirely plausible. But I also think that by by suppressing all of her memories of Gideon, she might have reburned a little bit. That's how I read it initially, is that it was her oh, relationship with Gideon that helped her unburn, whether it's Hufflepuff or... Slytherin, although I read it as as Slytherin, but, and then by erasing those memories, she burns again, and without going through that experience with Orpheus, then she's a lot more okay with sacrificing him. I think one of the things that sways me more towards Hufflepuff than towards Slytherin Mm -hmm. is just how much Harrow hates herself. Hmm. If she doesn't, if she's a Slytherin, I guess part of it is the timeline. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that makes me think Huffle, um, Hera might be a Hufflepuff. Because she's conceived. They murder a bunch of people for her. She's born. She grows up enough to understand what happened. And she decides that all of those people retroactively are her problem. And that feels Hufflepuff to me. Right? To be able to look back and say... You were my people. I didn't know you. I didn't love you then. But you're my problem because you are what made me. It feels like a weight and like a responsibility and a duty and a burden Mm. as opposed to a sense of love or importance or connection, right? Yeah. And that does raise the one of the splits between Hufflepuff and Slytherin which is that Slytherin is a decided house and Hufflepuff is a felt house. And I agree that this does feel a lot more felt. You said the the duty keyword. I feel like we don't see a moment where Harrow decides. You know, we don't see Harrow go, yeah. you know what? You are my people. And I feel like if Harrow was a Slytherin and she decided those children mm-hmm. 
were hers. There would be a moment. She wouldn't hate herself. She would hate her parents. Oh, shit. Truth bomb. She would be angry, right? Yes. She would say, how dare you? Those were mine, and you destroyed them, and you shouldn't have done that, and now I am here grieving them, and I'm full of fury. And instead, she sees it happen, and she goes, that's my fault. That's my burden. I have to live up to that now, because they were people, and they mattered. But there's no rage. I would love to see her get there, though. I would love to see her get to the point of being rageful at her parents for that exact thing. Because I think she can do that as a Hufflepuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be really healthy for her. She is not a happy, healthy Hufflepuff. No. She looks out and she sees the dead children. She sees the living remnants of Ninth House. And she goes, you're people and you matter. And I have to be good enough to deserve your lives and your death and i would love it if she also decided that she herself was a person that would be who was worth that kind of labor and that kind of care and i think if she can do that she will be able to realize that she is not just grieving them and fighting for them and trying to be worthy of them but she is also angry for them and for herself for the things she's been forced to carry. Yeah. All right. Preponderance of the evidence goes to Hufflepuff primary. I'm sold. Yeah. Also, it makes for Saturn. That's just better. I, I know that's how you feel, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> that is indeed um, consistent with what I know about you. <laughs> she's just she's having a great time. <laughs> no, I also, I also think you're right, though. I also think that's accurate. Yeah, and we'll see if we get new evidence in book three. Because definitely book two really changed my perception of Harrow in ways. I think I would have sorted her as a Slytherin in book one. Mm -hmm. But book two. It's true. There's so much of that inner burden that I'm like, oh man. It's true. No, I thought she was a Slytherclaw in book one. Yeah, I did. I was like, look, it's my wife. (laughs) Um, But uh, book two, she's just a really sad Hufflepuff Hufflepuff. It's true. And we do see her a little bit community bonding with the other Lictors. Not quite. But she does want to. Yeah, it's just they're all trash humans, so it's hard for her. <laughs> they are, yeah. Three assholes. I think that was, there was some funny hashtag that the author did that one of our friends told us about, where it was something like God and three assholes on a spaceship. Yeah, and it's amazing. Except God is also an asshole, so who knows. God, that was so good. Yeah, I just, because I'd, you know, been through getting the night, but not more faith in the author going into Harrow, it was so delightful to get on that space station and be like, oh, this is terrible. This is very upsetting. I realize we're talking about it and we're having tea and biscuits with God and, you know, we're wearing pretty things and everyone, you know, is largely speaking like this whole thing isn't directly and viscerally horrifying as a place for a person to be. But it is. And then it's so valid and get to the end and they're like, so everything here is um this really horrifying and upsetting and you're like yeah <laughs> yes feel it validated that is a really fun stylistic thing that we see in both books is is gideon not understanding how fucked up it all is and then harrow not understanding how fucked up it all is and then both figuring out to some extent how fucked up it all is but they're they're both still not quite there <laughs> <laughs> no and i think that's going to be what you were at pointing out later is are we going to get to a place where Harrow gets to be angry? Oh, I would love that. 
if they ever figure it out enough where they can see how weird and slightly horrifying and unbalanced this world therein is, how it's, it's built on death in ways that are just constant um, and unsustainable, which, uh, metaphor, um, mm. <laughs> I, I think we're going to get to see Harrow angry. And that's going to be so satisfying. What a fierce and gorgeous vision that would be. And it's going to be so satisfying in the way that hitting the end of Hair of the Ninth and being like, yes, God is as creepy as I thought he was. Ha! <laughs> you know. Even if he is also a tiny nerd and I, I him. He may have been my favorite character in book two. I was delighted. But also I was yeah. so pleased when we hit the end and it's like, oh, wow. You're abjectly terrible. I, I love it. Yes, good. Both are true. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's so true to life. And it that's really getting that, but in Harrow finally cluing in, you know, to this this mounting evidence and this transformation of how she sees the world she's in and how she sees her place in it and how she sees what she feels guilty about and what she feels angry about. It's gonna be really good. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, I cannot wait for the third book. Also, I'm excited to meet A.L. Right? Mm -hmm. So, and also, I think, so Hagar's a Hufflepuff primary. Gideon's Mm -hmm. a Hufflepuff primary. I think the story runs on Hufflepuff primary morality. Yes. I think those are the strictures which it obeys and which it sets up as ballast against evil. To be evil is to not consider people people, and to be evil is to hurt others for your own gain. And those are also some of the biggest moral issues that get explored in the resurrection, for example, is sacrificing that many people and also resurrecting however many people. It's the physics and the biology bits of that are still unclear, but there was some huge sacrifice leaving us with some people, and then there's potentially more sacrifice that may or may not kill these people and it's it's all very hufflepuff in the sense of taking large groups of people and saying which one is worth dying for the other even with the cavalier and the necromancer that's very much about like is it worth a human life to gain this power to save other humans and make other well and other lictors and god and yeah exactly and and that's sort of the that's the question that's posed by the first book in a lot of ways, right? First, it's what is the question? It turns out to be, will you sacrifice your cavalier, who may or may not be your friend, but who is someone who is connected oh, to you? Oh, is that how you pronounce um, it? I have no, it's French. I have no idea. Is it, will you sacrifice your cavalier to become powerful, to serve God and to serve your your world and your empire is that is that a trade you'll make and harrow says no gideon says yes because she's sacrificing herself but harrow says mm-hmm. no and if harrow had had a chance to sacrifice herself she would have said yes i am positive she would have yeah because they are both nonsense hufflepuffs and i love them <laughs> but harrow gives a hufflepuff answer which is no Hufflepuff is probably the house least likely to say yes to that question. You will have Hufflepuffs who do, but 
And you will have Slytherins who don't, Gryffindors who don't, Ravenclaws who don't. For Slytherins, it'll depend on the person. For Gryffindors and Ravenclaws, it'll depend on what their idealistic system is. But you can totally get a Gryffindor who says, this is terrible and this is hard, but especially if they're consenting. Sacrificing one person to save so many. <laughs> the amount of discussions we've had with our Ravenclaws on that front, cat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this is, its I think it's a Hufflepuff story. And that's why we have two Hufflepuff protagonists. It's, it's about the worth of human life and of life in general and it being worth fighting for mm -hmm. even when it seems like you're up against a no-win situation because the eventual answer is you don't have to sacrifice them you just have to be smarter i do love that that was our episode on gideon the ninth and Hera the ninth third book pending which may of course throw all of our sortings into disarray and prove us wrong uh, but that's the fun part. If you want to learn more about our system, we have a lot of content written up on our Tumblr and our WordPress. Our WordPress also has a link to our sorting quiz, which can take you from a half hour to three hours, depending on how much you argue with it, uh, which we recommend. We had a lot of fun building that. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in the future.